So if you have a Bible, if you want to turn there, and I'm turning there as well, we'll read that together, and then we will kind of walk through it. Uh, Psalm 96. Because here's, here's the reality as we talk about what it means to be a disciple. Worship is a component of that. But worship is a whole lot more than what happens in this room. Right? I, I love our band. We have an incredible group of musicians. And especially, I mean, sometimes I just come in here and listen to them play, and I'm blown away by the musical quality that we have here, especially given the fact that they generally only practice together once a week. Man, these guys are good. But there is so much more to worship than music. That's a part of it. Worship, music is not the totality of, of worship. No, no more or less than, than just being here on Sunday morning is the totality of being the church. Worship, we believe, is a lifestyle. It's not a song that we sing. It's the life that we live. And only when we live a life of authentic worship before the Lord can we come in here and our songs actually mean something or are authentic uh, expressions of worship and of, of praise to our Lord. Um, so let's, let's look at Psalm 96 this morning. I think this gives us, as we go to our, our manual, this gives us a good um, opportunity to, to see what worship really looks like. And what I want us to see this morning is that worship is the fuel of a disciple um, and worship is the life of a disciple. Let me read this for us and then we'll, we'll walk through it. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray and then let's jump into this passage this morning. Father, we are here uh, to worship you, to extol your name, to declare your praises. And so would you cause us to do that this morning? Would you inform us through your word? Would you teach us through your word? Would you cause us to not only praise you with our lips, but with our lives? God, would you fuel us through worship to make your name great to the ends of the earth? And would you give us great joy in doing that today? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things that I love about the Psalms is that there's a lot of emotion in the Psalms. There's a lot of uh, gut-level honesty in the psalms. Um, David and and other psalmists don't really kind of gloss over what's going on in life and their emotions they're feeling. There's there's a real honesty here that sometimes we may not feel completely at liberty to voice ourselves when we come to 
to praise God when we come to pray to God. And I think sometimes the psalmist can give us words to the emotions and to the, to the things that we feel and help us to properly channel those things uh, as we respond to what God is doing. Um, but the, the context of this psalm, this was an enthronement psalm. So Psalm 96 through 99 were written as uh, on the occasion of the enthronement of a king. And the enthronement of, of a king of Israel, but also realizing that the true king of Israel is God. Uh, and reminding the people of that, that their king is, they have an earthly king, but ultimately they, their only true king is, is God. Um, and it, as I read this passage, I hope that you can see, I've never heard this, song, this sung. I would love to know what it, would, it sounded like originally when it was sung. Um, there's some context to this. We're not going to look at this this morning, but this psalm was sung as basically a congregational hymn as part of a medley uh, in First Corinthians or First, excuse me, First Chronicles 16, um, when David brings the ark into Jerusalem. The whole nation of Israel gathers together and they're singing praises to God. This, you know, just imagine this huge congregation. They're singing praises to God and they sing this medley of Psalm 105 and Psalm 96 and Psalm 106 together. I don't know what that sounded like, but I would have loved to have been there to hear that. And I, I kind of get at least the picture in my mind's eye that, and that I, I think is accurate with this text, is that there's kind of this crescendo that builds all the way through the text. And the first, we're going to look at this, the first part of the text really addresses the nation of Israel. The, the second part of the text really addresses all the nations outside of Israel. And the third part of the text is a celebration of heaven and earth, of what God is going to do when he comes uh, and and as comes back as judge, and so there's kind of this this movement, this crescendo that builds all the way through the hymn. Um, it's, it's really a beautiful thing. But what I want us to see this morning in the first section is that worship is fuel for disciples. Um, and this first section is really verses one through six. And look at all the imperative language that happens in these first few voices, first few verses. He says, "Oh, sing to the Lord a new song." Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Declare his glory among the nations. There's a lot of imperatives there, right? That he's, he's saying to the nation of Israel, this is what you need to do. This is, this, is, this is what God is calling you to do. Sing, declare his glory. The reality that this psalm points us to is that our worship, and we'll see this all the way through it, our worship for God should lead us to not only declare his glory to each other, but it also should affect the way that we live, and it should affect our witness in the world. Um, Francis Schaeffer says that worship demonstrates our God concept and the temperature of our love for him. If our God concept is small, our public worship will be a reflection. If our love for him is meager, our worship will reveal it. So there is this idea that if we are living uh, a life with God, if we're living a life of worship, that that's going to be reflected when we come together publicly. But it also should be reflected as we come together privately as well. Um, and so the psalmist tells them to sing a new song to the Lord. Not just, not just creating a new song. Um, there are times that we sing new songs here, that songs that aren't familiar to us. But we can sing also in a new way when we come together, in a way that expresses a new desire of our heart and expresses a new uh, thanksgiving to God, not just in 
repeating words that we know and not understanding the meaning behind them or not not having the feeling behind them that the words uh, are portraying. Uh, I think sometimes sing us if we come in and sing a song flippantly without even thinking about really what it means or or saying that this is the intention of my heart. This is this is the praise that I'm giving back to God. In some ways, that's that's really almost like taking the Lord's name in vain because we're just kind of flippantly singing it to him and not really meaning it or not really even thinking about what it means. Um, Amos had a lot to say about that uh, to the nation of Israel and. And in a passage, particularly in Amos 5, he, he basically tells them, um, speaking on behalf of the Lord, away from me with all your, with all your musical instruments, away from, with me, from me with all of your feasts and your sacrifices. They're like clanging cymbals. They're like, um, because basically there was a hypocrisy there that they were living. They had this great public uh, worship ceremony, and yet their lives did not reflect God's justice and God's glory. And God said, I don't want that. I don't want to see that. So we're called in this passage and throughout Scripture that our lives need to mirror what we are, what's coming out of our mouth. Our lives need to mirror the song that's coming out of our mouth. And it tells us in verse 2, Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. That word bless means to kneel in adoration. That we come before God recognizing that he is so much greater than us, uh, he is so much holy, he is so much beyond us, and yet he gives us the privilege of coming into his presence. And so we come with a, a reverence and an awe and a, uh, just a, an ability to recognize his greatness. We're called to tell of his wonderful news. In verse 3 he says, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And here's the deal, right? Worship is a rhythm of God's revelation to us and our response to him. You see that all throughout Scripture. God reveals himself to us, and then he calls us to respond to him. That's part of why we structure even our public worship the way that we do. We want to hear from the Lord um, in communion. We want to hear from the Lord in the preaching of the word, and we want to respond to him rightly in singing, and we want to respond to him rightly in giving. We want to respond to him rightly in serving. Um, but there is always this response of God is the one who initiates. He is the one who reveals himself to us, and then we are called to respond rightly to that. And even this psalm is a reflection of that, that we're called to sing to him, to tell of his salvation from day to day, to declare his glory among the nations, because his marvelous uh, he has worked marvelously among all the people. We're called to respond rightly to him. And every disciple, everybody that calls the name of Christ, is called to respond rightly to God and to proclaim his salvation, to declare his glory and the miracles that he performs. And so, you know, just a basic question of application this morning is, how often is that true with you? How often are you proclaiming the excellencies of his name to those that don't know? How often are you declaring his glory among the nations, whether that's the nations in Rome, Georgia, or that's the nations in Southeast Asia or wherever, um, wherever God has placed you today? How are we doing that? How are we recognizing and praising God for the work that he has done, the work that he is doing, and declaring his glory among the nations? Verses 4 through 6, again, address towards 
the, the people of Israel, the household of God, the church, tell us why we should worship. It says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The reason that we're to worship is because God is infinitely worthy of our worship. He is the greatest uh, that there is. It says that he is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. The idea that all other gods, anything else that could be worshipped, is, is a fake. There's nothing else besides God. Um, John Calvin is known for this statement that the, the human heart is an idol factory, right? And that the, our, our nature is that we, we create idols, things to worship in place of God. Um, whether they are idols, as, as the psalmist is addressing in the Old Testament, of false religions, or whether they are anything that takes the place of God in our affections. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to look at a passage like this and think, well, I don't, I don't worship some other crazy deity. I, I worship God. And yet, neglect to think, okay, what are the things that maybe compete for my time, compete for my the affections of my heart with God. Um, Ken Sand has defined an idol like this, and I think this is a good way for us to think about it as we evaluate our own heart motives and, and as we come to worship. He says, an idol is not simply a statue of wood, stone, or metal. It's anything we love and pursue in place of God and can also be referred to as a false god or a functional god. In biblical terms, an idol is something other than God that we set our hearts on, that motivates us, that masters or rules us, or that we serve. That's a whole comprehensive description of what it means to have an idol. And what the scripture reaffirms for us here is there is no idol, no idol that is worthy to compete with God for glory. And so God is the only one that is due uh, the honor and the glory that he calls us to give him. Um, So the reason that we praise God is because he is infinitely worthy of that praise. And in verses 7 to 9, the psalmist turns really from addressing the nation of Israel those that are God-fearers, those that know him, to addressing those that are outside the faith, addressing the nations. And he says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and coming to his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Do you hear the imperatives here again? Over and over and over. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord. Give the Lord the glory that he is due. Attribute to the Lord the honor that he is rightly due. There's a, there's a command here, but there's also a pleading. Um, to, for the, I think this is a, a beautiful passage that shows us, and we see this thread all throughout Scripture, Uh, But you see it really clearly here. God is a missionary God. We see that all the way from Genesis, really in Genesis 12, the the first giving of the Great Commission um, with Abram, all the way through. Um, And this is another very clear instance of it. God is calling all of the nations, not just the nation of Israel, not just those who are his chosen covenant people, but those who who can be as well um, to, to bring him glory and to... Be part of that blessing that comes with that. Um, 
If you've been here any length of time, you probably have heard us quote John Piper in saying, uh, missions exist because worship does not. Worship is the fuel and goal of missions. And he says that the reason that it is is because it exists to bring people into the white-hot enjoyment of God. And I think this is a beautiful passage that illustrates that truth, that we go and we share the gospel with people, not just out of a motivation to uh, see them escape judgment, but out of a motivation to see them experience the greatest joy in life there is, and that's in knowing God, knowing Jesus, and in worshiping him, giving our lives to something that matter, giving our lives to something that has eternal significance beyond our brief time here. And so there's an invitation here in verses 7 to 9 as he turns to the, to the nations. There's an invitation in verses 7 and 8 for them to give glory to God, where he says, Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. And then there's also an invitation for them to give gifts to God. And not just financial gifts, but the very gift of their life, the very gift of inclusion in coming to the, to the temple. Um, he says in the second half of 8 and, and then verse 9, bring an offering and come into his courts. They were no longer to be excluded from the temple, right? They could come into the court. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. There's an invitation to the nations that is also applicable to us to worship the Lord in awe and in trembling. That, that our understanding of who God is ought to see him as completely holy, completely righteous, completely other than us. And understanding that we are called into the very um, inner courts of his presence to worship him ought to inspire this, this joyful trembling in us that, uh, that causes us to worship him. We ought to be in awe of him. Um, and we ought to be in awe of him enough that we are actively calling people to do the same that don't know him. Um, you know, one good basic application question out of this, I think for us as we seek to declare the glories of, of the Lord to those that don't know, is do we approach God in a nonchalant attitude? Do we, do we approach him without seeing that he is holy, that he is righteous, that he is completely other than us, that he is perfect in all his ways? Or do we just kind of, eh, it's just God. And does our witness among those that don't know him portray that nonchalant attitude? Or do we evidence that we worship and we serve a holy, righteous, incredible God who also calls us, the, the one who created and sustains the universe also calls us to personally know him, to personally serve him, to personally be involved in his mission in the world. As an aside, um, not really dealing with this text directly, but kind of an offshoot of it. If you've been here very long, I hope that you hear us preaching God as a big, powerful, holy, sovereign God, because that's the way that the Bible describes him, right? God is not some needy, man-centered uh, being that, that needs us, but that he is completely self-sufficient in himself, and he calls us to be part of what he's doing. He doesn't call us to be part of what he's doing 
and to give him glory because he needs us to do that, but because we, he wants us to have that joy. He wants us to have that privilege. He wants us to share in the glory that he already has. He wants us to share in giving that and in the joy of, of giving that. But God doesn't do that because he needs us to. He is completely self-sufficient, and he invites us to, to, to come into that joy and enjoy worshiping him together. Uh, and so I, I say that as an aside, but also I think that that informs how we witness with people as well. That informs how we talk about who God is and who Jesus is, because he is not someone who is needy of human hands, but he is someone who delights in the fact that we can come and serve him and know him and be his disciples. And the reason um, that or a reminder after he, he says this to the nations, again, a reminder to the church in verse 10, he says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. There's a reminder here that God is, an, is a fair and equitous judge um, because he does reign with righteousness. He reigns with sovereignty, with stability, with holiness, and there is coming a day that he is going to put everything right. And the reality is he's going to put everything right either according to our works or according to our trust in Jesus' work. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about this, this big-picture narrative of the Bible, right, of creation, the fall, redemption in Christ, and restoration ultimately. And we, we are not there yet as far as restoration, but there is a, basically every one of us is either in that stage of we're still in the fall or we've been redeemed by Christ and we're waiting for that restoration to come. And there's a promise here that restoration is coming. Um, and the basis on which we will be judged is either going to be our trust in Jesus and our trust in his righteousness, his imputed righteousness to us, the righteousness of, his, of himself that he gives to us and he covers us with, or our own righteousness, which the Bible describes as filthy rags, that we are never going to live up to his perfect standard of righteousness. But when we trust in Jesus, uh, when we put our faith in him, when we, we call on him to be our righteousness, we call on him to be our Savior, we receive that, and we will be judged according to Jesus and not according to our own work. Um, verses 11 to 13 tell us that there is a celebration that's coming when God comes as judge. It says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Nature is a testament to God. Uh, Romans 1 tells us that, uh, that his glory is evidence even in what he has created. And his creation worships him. And you can see that, you know, whether Jonathan mentioned going to the Grand Tetons, you can see that there. You can see it in going to some amazing places like the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or just going across town to Berry College and going on a hike. There are so many places you can see the, the fact that God's creation um, cries out and worships him. And yet there is coming a day that his, his creation is going to worship him in a whole new and kind of different way. Um, and as Romans 8 tells us that the whole earth groans with anticipation 
for God to come back and set things right. Uh, that the whole earth is waiting, awaiting redemption. There's a day that's coming. And Psalm 96 describes that, that the heavens will be glad, the earth will rejoice, the sea will roar, and all that fills it. The fields will exult and everything in it, and the trees of the forest will sing for joy because the Lord is going to come and put everything right. He's going to come as the perfect judge, and he is going to be the one who puts everything, um, who judges equity, judges with equity, and puts everything right the way that it needs to be. And so the question for us, I think, ends on, in, at the bottom of uh, verse 13. It says, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So where are we going to be when he comes to judge? Is he going to find us as disciples who are reveling in his uh, character, reveling in who he is and what he's done on our behalf in Jesus? Or is he going to find us as one who is trying to find our righteousness in ourselves. Um, you know, one of the saddest things that I've ever had to do as a pastor was probably a year and a half after we started Three Rivers, I was 25 or 26 years old, and I was asked to do a funeral. It was the first funeral I had ever done, and it was uh, my parents' neighbor had died in Gainesville, and he was really involved in a lot of civic organizations, had done a lot of really great things for children, and yet he had openly rejected Jesus uh, and said, no, that's not for me. You, you guys can keep that. That's not interested at all. And so I was asked to, to preach this guy's funeral. And what do you say? I had a really hard time coming up with how I was going to help his family have any hope. Um, and because the reality is this guy had done tons of great things for, for kids. He had done tons of great things that had um, impacted other people's lives, and yet ultimately he stood before his judge without hope because he was depending on his righteousness. He was depending on his own um, deeds that he had done to save him. And uh, I don't want any of us to be in that situation. I don't want any of us to be in a place where we come before the, the ultimate judge of the world and we are... We're depending on our own righteousness and our own good deeds to try to save us because the Bible is clear. He is holy, he is just, uh, and he will judge the world with equity. And his equity um, is, is perfect. And apart from Jesus, um, we will be on the wrong side of that judgment. So I want to ask the band to come on back up, and we're going we're gonna to sing and we're going to respond in a couple of minutes. But one of, the, one of the applications of this, as we talk about what it means to worship, worship not being just a song that we sing, but the life that we live, is we are called to share this hope that we have with those that are around us. We're called to share the hope in Jesus that we have. Um, we talk, we've talked about this some the last, uh, I guess, couple of months as, as Josh preached through a series on evangelism, and we've talked about how to, different ways to share our faith. Um, one of the one of the very most practical ways you can do that is uh, just in giving somebody a Bible and asking them to, to maybe, you know, hey, can we read through the Gospel of John together? Hey, could we read through the Gospel of Luke together? And let's talk about what kind of questions you have. Um, we have, Eric Cohn has found some great Bibles for us, and we actually have some that are on the back table. And it's just a, a point of application this morning. I would love to encourage you guys to take some of those with you as you go um, and pointedly pray for some of your friends and your neighbors, your coworkers, 
uh, and use those as an opportunity to share uh, God's word with them. Let's pray this morning and then let's respond in worship together. Father, would your word land in our hearts today? God, I pray that you would cause it to take deep root in us. I pray that you would cause us to take great joy in what you have done for us and in the message you call us to proclaim to the nations. God, would you be honored in our singing this morning, but would you be greatly honored in the living of our lives? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.